Welcome to the Amazon warehouse work episode. I won't go over the basics of these jobs. By now, you know that there are hundreds of thousands of people in the United States toiling away in these fulfillment centers, that there are very high injury rates and so on. Instead of listening to me, we have great segments produced with people who work those jobs. But before I get to that, introducing the show this week requires some explaining. For reasons I won't go into, the show has undergone the most minor rebranding in history. It's now called Primer. Hopefully that's close enough to the original that it isn't too confusing. I did consider gaslighting people and saying that it was called Primer the entire time, but I've ultimately decided against doing that. The Patreon link remains the same, patreon.com backslash primedpodcast. To the 57 people who have subscribed there, thank you, it really means a lot. For this episode, in addition to show notes and the Discord, if I can figure out how to use it, Patreon subscribers will get video of my interview with Chris Smalls. So this is your reminder that I'm keeping all the episodes free, and the way I can do that is if people who can afford to subscribe do so. So if you're enjoying the show, don't hesitate to subscribe at patreon.com backslash primedpodcast. Now to the episode. Like I said, we have two segments today. The first one was created by two people. One is an Amazon warehouse worker who won't be identified other than to say here that his facility is in the northeastern United States. The other is a London-based journalist named Freddie Stewart. The two of them collaborated in producing audio from inside the warehouse. You'll hear the machines and the scanner, people talking. Over that audio, the worker narrates his experience on the shop floor. You'll hear from Freddie while we listen to that audio. The second segment is with Chris Smalls, who I'll tell you more about later. So for this first part, Freddie and the worker met over a period of time to talk about life on the job. What they produced is the audio that you'll hear, as well as a written piece that will be in a future issue of Jacobin Magazine. I'll let Freddie take it from here. So I started working with The Source last summer. They said they wanted to record their experience of working at Amazon in a sortation centre and their experience of trying to organise the workplace. This is someone who'd lost their previous job at the start of the pandemic and was living between homes, crashing on friends' couches relying on the compensation of their previous job to get them by. Then they took this job at Amazon. I think what you get from the feature I wrote for Jacobin Magazine and from this audio we're about to listen to is an insight into the reality of everyday life for an Amazon worker. This isn't the shock story that you often hear about Amazon. It's not workers having to pee in bottles and struggling to keep hitting targets, though we know that does happen. But what struck me most working on this story was how the everyday experience of working there is so oppressive. You hear about these really quite dystopian Orwellian conditions in the warehouses, but for the person I spoke to, it's just the standard day-to-day routine. Weirdly, I think that's the story that's often missing when you hear about Amazon. For most of us, our interaction with Amazon is the next day delivery or the streaming service. You don't see or hear the everyday grind that goes into making this machine work. We managed to get a recording from inside the warehouse itself, so you actually hear the sounds of the sortation centre under the voice of the worker describing their experience. Perfect. Freddie, so why don't we start by you setting the scene here? What does it look like when you start showing up to the Amazon warehouse? So this facility, like many Amazon centers, is based right out in the middle of rural nowhere. It's concealed from the main road, hidden inside a massive industrial park. As we say in the piece, you wouldn't know what it was unless you got close enough to see the trucks. Outside is a huge car park. Many of the cars have Uber and Lyft stickers from workers who are working two or more jobs, which is technically forbidden at Amazon, but it's not something that ever gets enforced. And as you walk towards the vast complex, you see wire fencing surrounding the loading bays, 
and security cameras everywhere. So this interview clip begins with my source entering the facility. So I'm walking in towards the entrance. You're going in towards the turnstile. That's the first thing you see, the first thing you hear. I'm walking down an alleyway, ready to get image scanned. Okay, so he's walking in and there's turnstiles, and then he says he's getting scanned. Can workers not bring certain items into the warehouse? And then is the scanning about COVID? What are the COVID precautions that are taking place at this point in this warehouse? So the way the source described it to me in the morning is it's always a complete rush, right? You are scrambling to get to the car park. Once you get to the car park, there's no spaces <laughs> near the center. So you have to park your car at the other end of the, the industrial estate where the center is located. You get out and then it's always a run. You you know, your last minute you're throwing on your harness, etc., getting everything ready that you need for the day. Because if you're late, you get points, right? And Amazon has this point system whereby if you get up to six points, you will get fired, right? So it's all it's all done on a system. There's no one that you can complain to when you get there that, you know, something was happening at home, whatever. Um, so it's always a complete rush. You can't take your phone into the facility officially. You're not allowed a phone. But um, in reality, most people take their phones with them anyway because managers don't seem to care, which is something we'll, we'll come on to a little bit later. Um, and yeah, so you walk in through this turnstile and in front of you is a kind of temperature scanner that you're standing in front of. There's usually a worker there um, and they are just, you know, one of the other workers on rotation. It's not a special position. And um, you stand in front of this huge body temperature scanner thing and your red and yellow image appears on this large screen in front of you. And it will, and the person behind the desk will go, okay, great, that's fine, carry on. And when my source was explaining this to me, they made a point to say, I don't know anyone who's ever been stopped at these temperature checks, right? I do know people who have tested po positive for coronavirus in the facility, but I don't know anyone who's been stopped on the way in, right? Which means they're getting past the checks, they're working for four hours or, you know, maybe more on the belt lines, moving from belt to belt, and they're not being picked up at the scanner. Right. So these things are not particularly effective measures. As far as my source is aware, no. Right. Okay, let's go back into the audio. You walk towards these little uh, camera looking things that are pointing at you. They're going to measure your temperature. There's a, another worker sitting behind a laptop. They'll give you a thumbs up, give you a nod. I don't really know they know what they're looking for, but they give you a mask if you don't already have one on. Hey, how's it going? Thank you. You kind of walk through the end of that room and that room's really interesting because there's a whole lot of mantras and slogans just lit up right at the top. So right before you kind of Go from the semi-well-lit, looks almost like a school kind of facility, like an entrance with the turnstiles. You see the mantras, you know, work hard, have fun, make history. You slip around the corner and immediately the warehouse feeling hits you. What is that noise that we're hearing? So that is literally the noise of the worker walking around the corner and, you know, you're hearing the warehouse floor as they descend the stairs to this huge, vast factory area. It's like a wall of noise, like, hitting you. Like, it's kind of a threatening, ominous sound. Yeah, you're hearing the, the machines moving, you're hearing the belts moving, you're, you're hearing um, occasional klaxons, ear-splitting klaxons, especially early in the morning, because my 
Source was usually working the 8 a.m. shift, 8 a.m. to 12, 12 a.m., uh, 12 p.m. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that's what you're hearing when you walk around the corner, you know, this oppressive wall of noise. And I think that's matched by the, the view that you're getting, right? Which is, you know, no windows at all. You know, this vast, vast warehouse, you know, these um, corrugated iron uh, on the walls. You've got this yellow hazard tape. You've got these very bright yellow colors around the belts. Like it's all a very, you know, it's a very aggressive kind of image that hits you. And the sound, I think, mirrors that as well. Physically, you see this broad, expansive area. I remember my first day feeling really intense to just see something that size, but completely inside. You're impressed by like the raw kind of metallic nature. Everything's shiny and bright. It's all lit with LEDs. There's not a single window. You've got the conveyor belts running, the electrical kind of whirring, occasional klaxons, a regular kind of beeping that all kind of pierce through the noise. and you kind of know you're in. Immediately I feel like a part of myself just forgets where I am and just goes into kind of robot mode, follows the path of everyone else because you're literally following a line of other people dressed the same way you are. You've walked in and you kind of line up towards grabbing your equipment that you need and starting to think about what your job is today, it's often where I have time to think and like reflect on what it's like working there. You think of the security guards who kind of just sit there all day and have never moved no matter what. Uh, you think of the metal detectors that are supposedly there to stop people from stealing uh, things from packages in the warehouse. But I've never seen them used and they're, they're definitely not on at the moment. But it, it kind of adds to this whole sense of feeling a bit like you're in a prison. Like, I mean, this, the joke made by someone when I first started was that actually working in the warehouse is a bit like a prison, but at least in prison they feed you. You feel that, especially walking into the, the bigger warehouse section because of the way everyone's dressed the same, everyone does the same thing, there's managers watching you pretty closely. And then the language of like the Green Mile, something that I first found out about during my training I kind of recognized it, I googled it. I was like, what does that mean? I've heard that elsewhere. And it actually refers to the term given for death row in the US in certain prisons, but they use it in Amazon as like the path you should follow to get to your workstation, which I think is just very sinister. So this whole entrance area they described to me as a kind of securitized high school. You've got these vast intimidating security apparatus, the cameras, the guards, the metal detectors, so a real kind of dystopian atmosphere. But then you've also got these grotesquely bright colours, the vending machines and these slogans everywhere. Not just the, you know, work hard, have fun, make history, but these weird kind of, you know, life advice slogans. Be vocally self-critical, have a backbone, disagree and commit. You know, these are printed in massive bold along the walls of the corridors. It's a bizarre clash. The security architecture is intimidating, and the school-esque decor is kind of infantilizing. The source described the combination as making you feel very small, literally in contrast to the subterranean warehouse, but also just kind of irrelevant. They kept saying to me over and over again, you know that the person who designed this building has never worked in a warehouse, because no one who is doing the work here would ever design a building like this. It's isolating and it's intimidating. 
I think it's interesting the prison comparison and the school comparison too, right? Because they're both obviously places where people don't necessarily want to be, but they're also distinctly hierarchical institutions. That feeling of dread every time you wake up and you know you have to go and be bossed around all day, which is the same for many workplaces. But that feeling of being constantly controlled, surveilled and datafied was consistent every time we had a conversation. Right. I mean, the source says that he goes robot mode, you know, and robot and they're treating us like robots is such a common refrain you hear from warehouse workers, not just in the United States at Amazon, but around the world. There have been strikes in Europe where that was the slogan on the banner is we are not robots. And it reminds me. You know, there was someone wrote a fictionalized memoir about her time working in a warehouse at Amazon in Germany. Um, The book's called Seasonal Associate. And similarly, the sort of takeaway was about its effect on the individual. Right. And, you know, this reminds me of so many of the things in that book. For example, she puts she writes that you're an item on a list. You're at their disposal. Disposable. That's another word that comes up all the time. And the sense that you're just another item or machine in the warehouse, you know, that that is how many employers see their workers. But this visceral feeling in these warehouses seems really, you know, it's tangible that you're just as sort of unimportant as anything else in that warehouse. And you can be taken out and replaced at any time. Yeah, I think that image is something that's going to become very apparent when we listen through to these next few minutes. Um, but absolutely, you know, the idea that Every single cog in this machine, right? Every single person at Amazon needs to be instantly replaceable, right? So they need to make it so that no individual has any kind of leverage. So, you know, you know, getting rid of your individuality, your identity is part of that process, right? People refer to you as a scanner, right? It's your, it's your job, it's your identity. And I think that isn't necessarily, you know, distinct for Amazon. If you look at wider society, if someone says, what are you? you're expected to reply with your job, right? So it's this internalization of a work ethic that becomes fundamental to this process that you are what you do. And in this case, you are intentionally, from Amazon's perspective, being made irrelevant to the entire process. Right. It also was interesting, the school and prison as the two institutions being compared here. Because every the schools I went to growing up all were very sort of policed, right? So there were metal detectors, at the entrance, everything was searched in our bags in middle school and high school. Um, and security guards were just sort of ever present roaming the halls and asking you what you were doing. Um, and I mean, it was an incredibly effective tactic in making us feel, I mean, it would feel hopeless, right? And like, I mean, it's school, so we're already children. But this feeling of, you are I mean, in high school, you're not even being given the ability to, for example, bring in a cup of coffee or any any bottle of anything that had already been opened um, and it was very effective to, in making us prepared for prison. But also, it sounds like another institution that's just like that is one of these kind of jobs. This is something the source came back to me and said over and over again. I walk into this place and I feel like, like, wh- why am I here? Why are these people telling me what to do? And I think every part of the process in the workplace is a little bit like that. It seems ver- the rules seem very arbitrary. Who enforces them is very arbitrary. And as we're about to hear in the next sections as well like the hierarchy is very convoluted and it's very mystified and you don't really understand what's going on and what the whole superstructure is intended to do and how the entire warehouse operates and you know being in a school is a little bit like that right you're being taught things you know as you are the person that needs to receive information 
from the intelligent people. And I think that kind of atmosphere is also being curated in, in these kind of sortation centers. So can you set the scene for where our source is going to take us next? So they've walked in through the entrance area, down an alley to a staircase. There's a huge American flag there. You've gone from this industrial park surrounded by sunny fields in the middle of nowhere to this weird kind of dungeon with no windows. It's cold and it's sterile. So yeah, that's in my head. The other thing that's in my head is like they have these little, like tiny little posters that they put on like a little notice board like you would see in a school or, or any workplace. And it tells you all the people that have been caught stealing and, you know, they fired. It's anonymous, but it's like, you know, it gives you the date, gives you the item they tried to steal. It's trying to just put a bit of fear into you, really. But yeah, that's, that's exciting as much as anything could be exciting because it's something to think about as you start the drudgery of your day. But you also, like, I can't get at that point the mottos and themes out of my head it's interesting what will stick in your head when you're doing kind of tedious work for four hours and one of them is those mottos because you just see them over and over again leaders have relentlessly high standards because they refer to everyone as a leader every worker no matter how much you're paid or what your job is you're a leader so everyone's held to these standards which is funny because then one of the next lines is no task is beneath them so essentially it's saying you do whatever, doesn't matter if it's your job or not, because everyone's a leader. So I think the everyone's a leader line is fascinating because one of the things they kept saying to me was, I don't know who's in charge here. They described to me when you enter the warehouse, you see the general manager who is in charge of the whole facility in his glass box above the warehouse, looking down on all the workers like some weird kind of supervillain. But on the warehouse floor, you have the operations managers who sit in the command center watching a wall of screens connected to cameras across the warehouse. These managers patrol the floor, but they don't tend to come to the belts unless there's a major blockage or a disruption. So there's this weird kind of power vacuum. There are what's called learning ambassadors who train new recruits, and there are process assistants which keep track of the workers and the belts. But it's not clear, at least it wasn't clear to my source, who is legally in charge. Who takes responsibility? Who has the power to hire and fire? Who's getting paid more? What was clear after just a few conversations was that you can work there for a whole day and not interact with the manager, or with anyone really. It's the screens that tell you where to go and it's the scanner that tells you how well you're working. If something goes wrong on the belt, it's a blue or orange light that tells you if you've done something wrong. Human intervention is the last option. We can talk more about this in a minute, but it's a theme that my source kept coming back to. Control at the expense of efficiency. Amazon tries to rank everyone as a statistic, make everyone replaceable. But what you actually get is a very inefficient system because no one really understands how the full operation works and you're only accountable to a machine that you're constantly trying to cheat. I think a good example of this is the screen that allocates you in the morning, which I think you'll hear more about in a minute. It would be clear to a person that one belt has way more packages on it or that people are ignoring the allocation spots but the algorithm can't see this context. So managers end up walking around having to reallocate people after the screen has had to allocate them once already. In the same way, you know, machines can't account for which humans can lift heavier packages. So the whole process is actually really inefficient. And it's because they're trying to exercise complete control and take worker agency and even management agency out of the equation. So I think it's also just really important to bust that myth of efficiency because it's one that always gets used to defend Amazon. 
but from the reality, from the experience of what the worker was describing to me, it's a completely ridiculous system. Yeah, and I just want to elaborate on something you mentioned, which was the Learning Ambassador Program. I was recently talking to a source who, unsurprisingly, uh, had just quit at Amazon. Um, he'd been a stower. Um, so he was working, you know, the tier one entry level jobs. Um, and he was talking about the Learning Ambassador Program because he felt it was this very effective way to get workers to buy in to the sense that they might be able to move up the chain at Amazon which the numbers on this are pretty clear that you have very little shot of making much more money at Amazon. You know, it's a numbers game. Only so many workers could ever become management. And Amazon is very prone to hiring, you know, people out of college instead to, to jump into management. Um, and so I just want to explain to people what the Learning Ambassador Program is. So these are workers who are, they're not paid any more money than other workers. Um, and yet their job is to monitor um, their coworkers, so they are performing a management-like function, um, and a big part of this, how this plays out at Amazon, is the you have different vests, right? So if you go Google Learning Ambassador on YouTube, for example, if you look it up, you'll find videos. I watched some in this past week of a worker who just got her Learning Ambassador vest, and it says Learning Ambassador on the back, and she's just unboxing it and very excited, and she puts it on in the video and talks about. The program and you know there these are workers who are there's a real heavy promotion of it so that table in the break room will have like pamphlets that say apply to be a learning ambassador it'll say that on the tvs that you're referring to that show the assignments um, and these are workers who are just very kind of enthusiastic about their jobs at amazon who are encouraged to apply and then function as yet another layer of sort of control over their coworkers, it's a way to sort of build that hierarchy without adding any kind of pay. Yeah, and this is something that the source mentioned to me on multiple occasions: is that if you see operations managers on the warehouse floor and to visualize, they're wearing I think it's red vests with silver stripes. They're almost always being ta like tailed by kids on grad schemes, right? Whereas workers on the warehouse floor are never getting promotions. They're never if they, they can become a learning ambassador, which you know is barely more pay. Or they can apply for a blue badge, which become, which means you become technically permanent, which basically means it's, you know, you're probably not the first one to get fired when they let people go, but you don't have any other protections more than that, really. Um, you can work longer than six months and you I think it's 25 cents more pay. But that's it, right? Exactly as you said, you know, the operations managers are getting tailed by kids on grad schemes because you're not going to move up. There are too many of you, you know, they don't value what you're doing as experience in a, in a management role. It's a completely, entirely divorced experience. So once you've reached the front of this line, uh, you kind of then have to look up at these like plasma TV screens, there's three or four of them spread out, which give you essentially your, your workplace assigned. Where are you gonna be working in the warehouse? What's your specific job? It supposedly is random, it seems random. You're very rarely paired with the same people. So you're looking at the screen, you're figuring out where you're gonna be going that day, walk towards the little shelves where you get your barcode scanner, grab it, you log into it, so everyone has their own kind of personal ID. And so once you're logged into the barcode scanner, they know it's your scanner. So that's how they track how fast you scan, which is important because you spend a lot of time trying to get the right rate. Rate is the term that they use for how fast you scan boxes, basically. 
because most people in the warehouse are doing that role. They're re referred to also as scanners. It's like your, your identity in the warehouse. The next step, you're kind of going, depending on your role, like for me today, I end up doing what's called a water spider, supporting the work of the scanners. The scanners are grabbing these boxes from off of their, their belts and they're putting them onto pallets. Uh, think of like a big plastic pallet, uh, I think it's like six foot by eight foot, and they're stacking the boxes up so that they're grabbing them from the conveyor belt, they're looking at the number, does the number match their pallets that they're responsible for you know you have four or five behind you or hopefully four or five usually more um and you look at it you literally get your barcode scanner that's you know, attached to your your harness you scan the box you scan a box that's already on the, the designated pallet and then you stack it on the box and you do that for four hours and that's that's it so water spiders um he says that they support the people who are doing this other work. Can you talk about what that support looks like? What is the actual job of being a water spider, as this very strange term puts it? They're technically meant to ensure that there's enough kind of like wrap at the station and there's enough people there and, you know, all the equipment is there and the scanners aren't broken and the pallet jacks are working, all of this, all of which is usually broken. And we'll come on to that in a minute. I think that's an interesting aspect of it. Um, but yeah, their job is basically to, you know, pseudo manage the station, but also to wrap up the individual boxes together. There are very few other distractions, right? You don't get headphones. Headphones, earpods, whatever you want to call them, earbuds, all banned. You do see like some really smart people, right? In the age of COVID where you can wear those kind of face covers almost, not just masks that cover your ears, right? You can put earpods under that and no one's going to catch you. But if you are cool, like you will be shouted at, like you got, no, that's coming. So some people get away, some people are able to sneak those in, but otherwise like there's very little to distract you in the warehouse from what you're physically doing, like the physical actions, because it takes just enough concentration to have to focus on it, but not so much that you're actually like problem solving, right? Because it's just repetitive. So on the belt lines, no one talks. You aren't allowed headphones. And I don't think I can emphasize enough how much the headphone point was important for my source. It's something that, that came back over and over again because it's such a small thing that would make the work so much easier, but they're not allowed it. They kept pointing out to me that there are literally people in the warehouse who are hard of hearing, people who are virtually deaf. There were even two workers there that had to use sign language the entire time, right? So on the one hand, Amazon says, oh no, it's too dangerous to work with headphones. And on the other hand, they think it's fine to let people take these kind of risks. It feels pretty arbitrary. And I think that's the same with a lot of the rules in the warehouse. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point about the headphones. It's certainly something that one of the first things I wrote about working in these warehouses, I watched a ton of YouTube videos. This is an entire dystopian genre of YouTube video, which is people telling other people, that's why they're posting the videos, about what it's like to work these jobs. Um, so these are not, you know, like political activists who are trying to raise complaints about the conditions. They're trying to be informative to potential coworkers. Um, and time and again, it comes up this headphone policy that just, you know, we're talking about the most tedious, repetitive work. And just if you could listen to music or a sh podcast or something, it would be so much easier to deal with. And people just bring this up in video after video, you know, and eventually often the sort of postscript to these videos is, 
there will be one that is titled why I left Amazon, right? Because people leave all the time. And I'm glad you emphasize the turnover rate and the difficulties of organizing because I think people really should understand that that is one of the key obstacles to organizing Amazon. Um, and I think people sort of assume that that's true, but the numbers here are just completely nuts. I think turnover, there's a recent New York Times article that looked at this systematically in a way that people haven't really had those numbers before. And it's 150% turnover. Um, so you're, the entire workforce is gone and replaced within eight months. So just imagine you know, how hard we it is to organize, for example, a fast food place for similar reasons of high turnover. Amazon is like that, but even worse, right? And so I think that is sort of the key condition that workers find themselves in, um, as well as this extremely individualized type of work, right? Where everyone has their own rate and it's there's no cooperation going on. So, you know, capital is not, it's putting you into a relationship with your coworkers under one roof. But the conditions of this job are extremely individualized beyond that sort of geographic proximity. And I think it's easy to think it's kind of farcical to imagine workers getting badges, right? The blue badges, you know, to say they're allowed to work longer than six months. Because it's like, you know, how often do you go to a job that's you know less than six months, right? Or, and I talk about this in the piece, um, if you've worked there for longer than five years, you get a little gold lining around the edge of your badge, right? And that is kind of absurd to a lot of people. But in reality, it genuinely is a marker of those people who are willing to stick it out. You know, and there's not that many of those people. So your shift is four hours, the breaks come about halfway through. And it's essentially a 20 minute break broken down by the fact that you have to walk from your workstation to your break. In that time, you don't get extra time. It's a five minute walk for most people probably from their workplace to their break room. There are multiple break rooms, but almost anyone that's going to take a couple minutes and then you kind of get there and everyone is sat at their own covid distance table so right these are the tables that you could fit four people around but because of covid it's one person per table uh, with one chair spread across like a pretty large area you know there's 50 people on break and not a single person is talking uh, occasionally, you know, people were like sneaking off to the side, not, you know, distance, taking their masks off a bit. But really, no one's talking. And people are just on their phones. You can see just people's faces lit up and like a little bit of the, just the, the scrolling motion that everyone is kind of doing at the same time uh, while being completely like ignorant of what everyone else is doing. It's a weird scene, particularly because the break rooms are in the physical warehouse. You don't really, for the most part, get to walk anywhere else unless you want to waste your whole break walking outside. You are usually sat like meters feet from where other people are working or are still working. And so the sounds, the sights, everything is still the same. You still see everything. Even if you're not working, you kind of are associated with that. So you space out a lot <laughs> during the break, or at least I space out a lot. So. Another theme that came up a lot was this idea that rules are only enforced when you aren't working. So in the piece, we talk about how social distancing on the belt line is a complete myth, as is masks for a lot of people. But in the break room, it's highly regulated. One person to a table, six feet apart. And the scary thing is, it sounds like a lot of these rules might stay after the pandemic. They fall neatly within Amazon's remit, you know, their aim to keep people separate. They don't want you interacting. They don't want you getting to know each other because you might bond and you might talk about how much you hate the work. You might begin to organize. 
one of the things you are focusing on in the warehouse, particularly with everyone wearing these masks, is like the real threat of COVID, right? Social distancing is a bit of a joke, except when managers are watching you enter and leave the facility. But when you're at work, you know, you can't keep distance realistically. And you're not really expected to, it's not really enforced. Um, so you're looking around at everyone else masked up and you're kind of, your head moves to COVID, particularly when you see older workers there. And you know that there are cases, right? You get a text saying on your phone, like I got one in the last month saying, somebody in the facility anonymously has got COVID. This is the last time they were in the facility. In theory, they'll tell you if they were in close contact with you. Although I'm not quite sure how they would know who's been in physical contact because everyone kind of is leaving or entering the warehouse. But what is interesting is that a lot of Amazon workers have decided to actually find this information for themselves and compile it. So there's a document on a Facebook page that I looked up before I started wanting to know a bit more about working there. And it has a list, a massive spreadsheet of all the different facilities that Amazon workers have identified as having COVID cases, how many cases, what dates they have them. It's pretty incredible. And I think probably it's just a, an idea that, you know, the management's not going to keep a track of this, so we have to. So he's talking about social distancing and he calls it a joke. Um, and this is something that a lot of Amazon workers will say about how the past year has gone for them. Um, but I think it's important for people to really understand how this has developed over time, right? So early in the pandemic, there was panic at a lot of these warehouses because as is being demonstrated in this segment, you know, workers are very much in the dark about every detail of their job down to what assignment they're going to get today um, and how they're doing all of these things. And they were kept in the dark about COVID. Um, we're interviewing Chris Smalls in this episode who part of why he ended up being fired from Amazon was because he'd started organizing because he felt that there were no precautions being taken in his warehouse and that workers were being left in the dark. There are many cases of people only being informed about a COVID case after they were already inside the warehouse, never being informed about a COVID case. This is why workers are doing this spreadsheet organizing that he refers to where they're tracking what's happening in these warehouses. Um, and I, you know, the psychological effects of this were really intense, especially in the first few months of COVID. I remember distinctly this phone call I had with someone who was working in a warehouse in Texas, who was a young person, very healthy, and he wasn't particularly concerned about his own safety or getting COVID, but he's he started crying on the phone while talking to me because he was talking about the older workers in his warehouse and that he felt just so incredibly scared for them. Um, and like there was absolutely nothing he could do to make them safer. Um, and so these are workers who've really been through it. Um, and so when workers are now talking about COVID being sort of not taken seriously or masks are not super enforced, I think it's important to have that kind of context of what they've been through already. Um, and, you know, and the numbers here were that by October of 2020, 20,000 Amazon workers in the U.S. had gotten COVID. Um, and that's just Amazon's own admission. So obviously we would assume the numbers are higher. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these jobs, even if the rules were enforced, you couldn't possibly socially distance on the lines, um, but they're certainly not evenly enforced at all. So I can just add to that a little bit um, from the experience of my worker. Right. So when there are COVID cases, they'll send you a text, as they say, 
if it was someone who is exactly on your shift, you know, they might send you an email, HR might send you an email, but nothing actually changes. There's a there's a big performative element to it though, right? At the start of the pandemic, Amazon offered workers in this facility at least the chance to become COVID auditors who basically wear neon yellow vests and patrol the warehouse floor to shout at people for not social distancing. This worker told me that they've heard of some facilities where the auditors go around carrying like pool noodles to like poke people to make sure they're six feet apart. So it's this really kind of absurd performance pretending that they care about the welfare of the worker while actually not doing anything substantive to support them. And again, these COVID auditors add to this weird murky authority that we talked about before because there's still workers, they're still paid the same, they previously worked with you on the belts and now they're shouting at you even though they know you can't really stay six feet apart. You know, it all seems quite arbitrary. And then when they talk about the Facebook page and the spreadsheet, which logs all of the COVID cases, this is around the same time that they themselves started organising, right? So they were angry about this kind of security discourse that is used to justify surveillance and exploitation when workers are so clearly having to watch out for their own security and ensure their own safety when Amazon doesn't. So they got in contact with an organising group known as Amazonians United, and they were trying to do what is known as salting, which is not necessarily to agitate, but more networking, right? So they're trying to get to know people, trying to get phone numbers, trying to bond over their experiences and see if anyone is up for trying to organise and trying to fight for some change in the warehouse. This organising effort really did starkly come up against this kind of lonely an isolated feeling, which is the experience of so many Amazon workers, which I think you'll hear in this kind of next clip. People just want to finish. They want to go unnoticed. They want to work quickly. They want to work quietly. They want to go home. There's a sense of shame, I think, about this work where people aren't ashamed of the title or the fact they do manual work or where they work, if they work in a warehouse. But it just is a very meaningless, undignified form of work, right? You're not making food for someone and you see that person and they get the food. You're taking packages, a lot of them pointless, useless, definitely not essential packages. And I think when you build rapport with someone, right? When you develop a friendship in a workplace like that, it's assumed the friendship's also going to function outside of work, right? If it's a real deep friendship, if they know something personal about you, if they want to get to know you better. People don't want to bring these relationships from work outside of work because that means the reality of where you work escapes into the rest of your life. I think there's a mental separation a lot of people have between their work and their life, and it's got to stay that way. I think it's probably a big part of why Amazon's high turnover rate. So as soon as you leave, you want to forget that Amazon even exists. It's so difficult to make friendships when the thing that bonds you is something you want to forget, right? These are lines in the piece that me and the worker wrote uh, for Jacobin in the next issue. And I think they're worth unpacking here, especially when it comes to the expectations versus the reality of what it's like to organise in these facilities. I think when a lot of people think about organising, they imagine huge strike actions or picket lines leading workers out of the facility, etc. But the reality for people like my source is that even just making a few friends is a real achievement. It's physically and emotionally exhausting trying to organise alongside the work. Amazon understands that workers hate their jobs, right? Like, they know that people resent being in the facilities, 
And I think you can see how clearly that is with these new kind of Amazon chambers, right, that's come out recently, you know, offering spaces for workers to meditate in the middle of a shift, right? They understand there is anger. But at the same time, I think it's really important to remember that people hate the work, but they're grateful for the job. And they're even more grateful to get 15 bucks an hour, particularly in these rural areas. I think it's important to end on the point about anger, though, because it shows that there are people like my source who are trying to organize. And if the channels are created, people can direct that anger to make some kind of change. So when the worker recorded this podcast with me, what they were telling me to say over and over again is, I hope that other workers are listening to this and that they can identify with the experience that I've had so that they know that other people feel like this, right? That they know that other people are organizing or are trying to fight for some kind of change, that the fight isn't completely useless. We know that what we're up against is such a mystified, disembodied force. You can't see the thing that's oppressing you. But for people like my worker, they want to bring this reality into the everyday discourse. They want it to become part of the conversation. So when you think about Amazon, you're thinking about the person who's suffering in the sortation center. The second segment is a conversation I had with Chris Smalls. Chris's story has been widely reported, but if you're unfamiliar with it, here's what happened. Chris used to work at JFK 8, an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, New York City. He'd been at Amazon for years when the pandemic hit. Chris was a leader, someone who trained other workers. So when he felt Amazon wasn't taking the necessary precautions to keep his co-workers safe as COVID consumed New York City, he led. He began agitating in JFK 8, and then he helped stage a rally outside of it to protest the unsafe conditions. It caused quite a headache for Amazon. The company responded. They fired Chris. They said it was for violating social distancing rules, but it was obviously retaliation for organizing. Even New York State Attorney Tish James has charged Amazon with unlawfully firing Chris. It's worth saying here that Chris isn't the only person Amazon has fired in this way. And it's black workers like Chris who most often come in for this retaliation. Last year, I interviewed another black Amazon worker, John Hopkins. He was also told that he'd been suspended for violating social distancing rules. But he'd been organizing, and he felt this was clear retaliation. Anyway, after Amazon fired Chris, Vice obtained a memo from the S-team meeting about the situation. Remember, that's the highest-level executives at Amazon. In that meeting, at which Jeff Bezos was present... Amazon General Counsel David Zapolsky said Chris was, quote, not smart or articulate, and to the extent the press wants to focus on us versus him, we'll be in a much stronger PR position. Chris has been focused on making Amazon regret that ever since. I've been in touch with Chris ever since he was fired last year, and I've seen how he's been transformed by the experience of having the richest man on earth personally go after him. As of April of this year, Chris has helped launch an independent union organizing effort. He's seeking nothing less than unionizing Amazon's thousands of warehouse workers at JFK and at nearby warehouses. The New York Times recently, as in in the past week or so, published an investigation focused specifically on JFK 8. We mentioned that article in our conversation as it details the incredibly high rates of turnover at the warehouse, the firing by algorithm, the inability of workers who have been fired to even reach a person, a human being, to explain their termination. It shows a company that is driving its workforce to despair and desperation. As we discuss in our conversation, Chris's organizing is a long shot. 
established unions with money and structures and whatnot haven't organized any U.S.-based Amazon warehouses. Whereas Chris is doing it with a few co-workers, or rather former co-workers since he's been fired, and a shoestring budget. So it's about as uphill a battle as it gets. But who's to say what Chris can or can't do? Workers need to organize, Amazon workers need to organize, and that will take people trying many different strategies. Plus, it's Chris, someone whose life was changed almost overnight by Amazon's actions. Hey, Chris. So to start, I want you to tell people about what you've been up to over the past month or two. I know it involves you sitting under a tent outside of JFK 8, which is the warehouse where you used to work in Staten Island. Absolutely. Hey, thank you for having me. So yes, for the last two months, we've been outside of JFK 8, my former facility, uh, organizing workers to create their own worker-led union called AOU, Amazon Labor Union. And um, yeah, I've been out there on the ground as a lead organizer slash volunteer to um, have my presence, uh, tell my story to the workers who just got hired this year, who may have not, not heard of what happened last year, um, try to connect those two and, and help the, the organizers on the ground uh, talk to workers and, and get workers to sign the, the union cards. Um, so right now we're in the beginning phase. Uh, we have to get to our um, uh, 30% goal before we can file for an election. And once we get there, um, Amazon will probably dispute it. But I think that we have a great chance uh, here in New York, being a union town, to get to our election and not only get to our election, but actually win um, this time around. So that's what we're out there doing every day. So what is the Amazon Labor Union? That's an independent union that you and co-workers or connections started. Tell people about it because I think they're familiar with what happened in Bessemer, which was with an established union, RWDSU. But this is a very different type of organizing effort. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is worker-led, meaning... um. Uh, all the organizers are current workers of JFK. They're not former workers. Actually, I'm the only one that no longer works with the company. Uh, the rest of them are still current employees. Um, and they decided, along with myself, that this is the best route to take instead of going with an established uh, union because they know the, the ins and outs of the company like I did. Um, they, um, A lot of the lead organizers been around with Amazon uh, three plus years some of them even four, five, six, seven years. So they're all seasoned Amazon workers. They're veterans. Um, they have a lot of influence in the building. And uh, yeah, not only are they my former coworkers, they're, uh, some of them are my closest friends. So um, this is a different energy. And we felt that this route is the easiest way to, uh, once again, becoming successful after uh, watching Bessemer. Right. Okay. So you say easiest way. Now, obviously, this is a massive uphill battle, right? And so I wanted, I want you to take people through to start, you know, these warehouses are kind of in the middle of nowhere. And my understanding is that a lot of your organizing is you and, and your friends who are involved in this effort, you know, at a tent next to the bus stop. So can you just tell people, like, what does that organizing look like? Obviously, people at Amazon are really tired and just want to go home before, you know, before and after shifts. Yeah, you know, so yeah, we're at the public bus stop right across the street. Um, it's actually a great location. You know, we're right in the middle. Uh, you have to pass us when you are uh, taking public trans. I know that um, around 80% of the building takes public public trans. So we see a large majority of the workforce. 
um, a lot of these workers are we seeing that we're seeing are they used to be my direct employees underneath me. So sort of like a reunion. And um, when I mean by easiest, that's what I mean. These conversations, because this is home base for me, um, working with a lot of these workers before I was terminated. Um, it helps get them to uh, get on board. And as far as uh, uh, the bus stop, yeah, there's not like uh, Bessemer, Alabama. The bus stop was like down and around the corner. This is literally across the street. Uh, we're visible every day. I, I, I even think management can see us from their front windows. So it's kind of fun in a sense. And um, it's a different, once again, a different energy. Yeah. And so in this segment earlier in this episode, you know, this worker takes us through walking around the warehouse. And one of the senses that he conveys is this sense of exhaustion and almost shame people feel about this job because it feels like it's useless or something like, you know, you're packing people's dildos. And so I just, you know, you're someone who has managed to like you're organizing despite the incredibly difficult kind of specificities of this job. And so can you tell me, like, you know, you're talking to workers all the time now every day. Like, how are people feeling and how do you overcome that sense of just like, you know, it's too big a fight to win? How do you overcome that and inspire people to, like, get involved in this effort? So, yeah, small victories matter. And um, along our organizing efforts, we had uh, plenty of them uh, starting from last year uh, before we even started the union campaign. Um, we, we we connect people with the victories that we had over the, the year. Uh, VPs resigning in solidarity with the workers, um, the media attention, the public uh, opinion of, of all the protests that we've done against Jeff Bezos. Um, we filed about five ULPs already, un, unfair labor practices. So the workers are seeing firsthand the strength of what the union does. We already had several different changes in JFK 8 since we've been there in the last two months. Um, the New York Times article that came out uh, just a few days ago, that was substantial because they had to remove all the union stuff in the building. So there was actually no anti-union um, um, literature in the building for the last week and a half because Amazon was afraid of what was going to be in that article. So these things, uh, we put these uh, in- this information in the worker's hand and the workers see that the strength of the union is actually working and beneficial for them. So it's they're, they're, um, it's easier for them to sign. It's easier for them, easier for us to have that conversation. And um, that's what I've noticed with our campaign, that we're we're um, we're having small victories along the way. You mentioned anti-union messaging. And so you launched this organizing effort, I believe, in like late April and Pretty immediately, Amazon started rolling out, for example, on the big TVs inside the warehouse. Now it has the classic anti-union message of like, do you know what you're signing when you sign an uh, authorization card? Stuff like that. But they've also there. You've said a couple other things. So, for example, you said the the fire department showed up to check permits for you at your tent outside. What is Amazon's response, both the company level, but also maybe like the managers who are just at the warehouse? What are they saying to workers? Yeah, so uh, they are they hit they definitely um, not wasting no time with us. Uh, they brought the same um, union buses that were in Alabama up here. Um, one in particular, Brad Moss, who's been in the building. Uh, he's the president of TBG firm, a labor firm. Um, they called the cops on us. They called the fire department on us. Um, they basically tried to get us removed off the property. 
all failed because the fire departments unionized, the police department unionized, the bus drivers are unionized, the construction workers that are building the Amazon facilities are unionized. They're surrounded by unions and um, no, none of them want to get involved with our efforts because they know what we're doing is the right thing for these workers. They know the horror stories of Amazon. They know the horror story of these workers. So actually it kind of played in our favor. It backfired on the company because once again, we were able to prove that that's a victory for us because uh, unions pretty much stick together when it comes to these type of things and these campaigns. And uh, they've been very supportive, all of them. And as far as uh, the workers being exhausted and, and um, overwhelmed by the management, um, that's also backfiring. Amazon hit the ground hard, drilling this anti-union stuff, bringing in these union buses right away. Once again, we're only two months in and they did all the things they did in Bessemer pretty much six to eight months into their campaign. They're doing to us now. So the workers are like, why are they doing this? If it's really something that they don't want, then it's probably something that they, they need. So um, that's that's why we're able to, once again, continue to get the signatures and trend in the right direction because Amazon is just going too hard at the workers and we're just playing the cool, calm, collective route. Um, we know that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, you mentioned a specific union buster. And so you were in Bessemer, you visited during the lead up to the union vote there. Is this someone that you saw there? Like, what do you mean it's the same people in the same firm? Do you know that for sure? Have you had to talk to these people? So, no, I didn't see them down there. Um, But we already one of the ULPs that we filed is from a witness that's a part of our um, committee. And she had a conversation with him and he was bragging and boasting about what he did in Alabama. He said that he was the the one who stopped it. And um, he called us black organizers, a bunch of thugs. And we're nothing but a bunch of Black Lives Matter protesters. And, uh, you know, Alabama, um, the workers didn't want this union. And he tried to pretty much say that we are the same union that's trying to do um, have the efforts up here in Staten Island. He's just dividing the workers. So we know for sure that it's him. Uh, we know for sure that he was down there. He's uh, bragging and boasting around about it. And uh, we already, once again, another victory is that we were able to sue on behalf of the racial rhetoric that he's spreading in there. And now he's possibly out the building. and His contract has been terminated because he's been exposed. Right. And you mentioned, I mean, this guy making racist comments. And I know in the past when we've talked, and I I guess listeners should know that we've talked ever since you got fired. So it's been a while now. Um, And I know one of your complaints was about racist discrimination in the warehouses, not just yours, but, you know, like that New York Times article shows, this is a pretty company-wide problem. Um, Can you just lay out for people who maybe haven't seen previous statements you've made, like when you were still at Amazon, what were your big complaints about what you were experiencing? Besides the working conditions, um, it's, it's definitely been the systemic racism. You know, I've been a supervisor for four years there and I tell people all the time, you know, um, it was very revealing when I read that article because it hit a, a, a tough spot for me, uh, kind of made me frustrated because I was robbed. You know, I applied to be a manager 49 times and never got it and never could figure out why. When I had all the qualifications, um, I did my job well. Um, I opened up three buildings. I put in the work. I spent, you know, uh, so much time away from my family, my kids. Um, For them to have a system designed for 
especially for us not to move up. And I mean us, I mean black and brown people. Um, it's just disheartening. And it starts with the top. It starts with Jeff Bezos himself. And I think we already knew that there's some type of racism in the company when the smear campaign that they wanted to do on me last year, calling me not smart or articulate, you know, having that meeting. This is the reason why, you know, I have to continue to fight because if if we don't stand up for ourselves, they're not going to do it for us. They're not going to uh, stand in solidarity with the black community. So um, we have to expose all these things, hold them accountable. And that's what we're trying to do as well as unionize these facilities. Right. I mean, it's really ridiculous. Like I've certainly people who currently are still working at Amazon have sent me stuff like them being handed black power, like pins that the company gave them, you know, to show their support for during the uprising last summer. Um, And yet at the same time, this is a totally like black workforce that is being paid as little as they can. Um, and being managed by white people for the most part. I mean, it's a very egregious kind of hypocrisy at play at Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's also, once again, is playing into our favor with the article that came out. We're, we're putting it into the workers' hands. Um, it's always a large disconnect. You know, one of the biggest barriers when it comes to organizing is the working class is disconnected from the controversy. You know, they work 10, 11, 12 hours a day. Um, they go home to their families. They have to eat wash and rinse and repeat they have to go back to work the next day they don't have time to tune into the media the labor movement um you know whatever's out there in the, in the news as far as controversy so we have to literally uh educate and give it to them give them the, the articles let them know that what they're really working for um is against them the system that they they're working for is against them and um it's playing in, into our hands once again with this latest article Yeah, I mean, I'm curious. That article just came out, so maybe it's too early to ask. But how have people who are working in that warehouse understood or reacted to it? And, you know, I'll have talked about this in the intro to the episode, the details of that article. But it was like a year-long investigation, particularly specifically into that one warehouse. And it was really shocking what they found. You know, intentional high turnover, accidental firings constantly. You know, people just being left out to to starve to death by Amazon and not even being able to, you know, if you can't even get fired by a human, you just can't get in touch at all. And you're talking to like a bot, you know, how incredibly alienating is that? So how are people responding to seeing really what's going on in the warehouse? So, yeah, uh, actually yesterday it, it was amazing because there were people that actually read the article on their way to work. And once again, they have to pass our tent and they didn't even hesitate to sign. You know, we had a couple of workers just come right up to the table and said, you know, we had the article sitting on the table. Um, I had some copies. We made some copies of it to give to the workers, but they already read it. You know, I was passing it to people and they were like, nope, we got it. You know, um, and they were definitely struck by the fact that this company said all these things. And not only that, the, the, the one thing that stuck out is a quote from Jeff Bezos, basically calling this workforce lazy. And um you know, he didn't care whether we stay longevity at all ever since the beginning of this company. So it just speaks to the volume of how we are looked at as nothing but a profit. And uh, yeah, the high turnover is the number one reason why we want to unionize to have job security. Um, and and I think that uh, this article is really resonating with the workers. Um, it's just it's going to take time for us to get it into 7,700 workers in that area. But um, I think that the the word of mouth and um, I think the fact that we're out there giving it to the workers with our copies, 
um, blasting it on social media. It's all helping in our favor, once again, with our unionizing efforts. Right. And one thing I do want to ask that might be kind of a tough conversation is you're talking about how workers are signing cards that you, you know, your effort, you're the only one who's not a current worker, which certainly helps build trust. At the same time, this is a huge warehouse. Amazon is one of the most anti-union employers and has the most money, you know, of any company in the United States. And it's hard to win a union election, even with an established union, right? So tell me, you know, what do you expect to happen? Like when I think you need 1700 cards to even get to the legal minimum of 30% of workers, which you can then file for a union election. But good practice is that you get far more than that, right? You get the vast majority before you file. So realistically, how do you expect to get there? So yeah, we know that uh, the high turnover is against us. The clock is against us. When we get these cards signed, we don't know how long these workers um, going to last. You know, we have workers signed and literally get fired the next day. It happens. Um, the beauty of it is, we've been around JFK Eight. This building alone been around for three years, compared to Alabama that's been around for almost you know, a little over a year. I think they opened in March, right? So. Worker, the worker influence matter. And once again, as I mentioned, some of my lead organizers been around with the company for three plus years since JFK opened. Others transferred from other buildings that have been around for five, some seven years. Um, So we have a lot more worker influence in Staten Island than they did in uh, Alabama. So that also plays into our favor. The fact that these workers, a lot of them transferred from my first facility um, back in 2015. So I've known these workers for years, these workers for years, the lead organizers uh, know these workers for years. They're still current workers. So we have a a, a large committee within the warehouse. Um, we're building our committee week by week. It's growing. And that now we have we're at the point where I don't really have to be out there every day. Um, the workers are organizing themselves. And that's what we wanted to do. We want to create a snowball effect. You know, I'll be out there. Uh, with my presence. But once we build our structure, um, we have our meetings every week. Now the workers are starting to take their their own destiny into their own hands. They're in the building as we speak right now, talking about the union. They're wearing the, uh, the, the ALU shirts, the mask. They're making statements. They're putting things on the VOA board, which is the voice of associate boards. They're co- uh, confronting the union busters. So it's like we're getting all the information real time, what's going on in the building 24-7. And it's, that's the beauty of it. We have a really strong uh, stronghold with a committee in, in the building. That's great. I mean, it's often a big test for when you're doing a union campaign. Can the, Do the workers feel confident enough to wear a button or a shirt, right? That's the union. And you're saying people are already doing that in the warehouses. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. And I do have one more question about this, which is in that recent, there's a recent Guardian article about you and your efforts. And they quoted the president of RWDSU, the union that is organizing in Bessemer. And he said, you know, he supports you and they're happy to give you money if you run out with nothing expected in return. So what is your relationship with this union? Because I think from the outside, it's certainly, you know, people would wonder why is he doing this on his own and starting a different union compared to sort of you know, backing established unions. Well, I, I saw that quote too, and I was surprised. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't, 
I don't know what my relationship is with that union. You know, to be honest with you, I reached out to them uh, when I went down to Alabama and um, I was kind of taken back at the fact that they didn't want to really rally with me down there. You know, I thought that me coming down there, bringing workers from different parts of the country, um, I wanted to do a rally that was worker led because I noticed that, you know, they were making it too political for me. And I said, that's not going to work. You know, I knew, you know, bringing politicians like Nina Turner and Jamal Bowen and Corey Bush. Yeah, it's good that we know these these politicians, but I could tell you the workers at Amazon don't know these politicians, especially in Alabama. And I said, that's not going to be enough to resonate with the workers. I think a worker-led rally, you connect the stories. Because when I went to Alabama, they haven't heard about New York. They didn't know what I did. They didn't know who I was. And that was a great conversation to have. And I actually got people to to change their mind because they heard about what happened. And I had other workers to tell their stories. So that was the connection we were trying to make, workers to workers. And it seemed like the union didn't want that. So I didn't have a really great time experience with the union down there, to be honest. And so I was kind of surprised that he said that in the article. But, um, you know, once again, it's good to know that they support us. But uh, I think that we're going to just stay the independent, completely independent route. Uh, you know, we raising, we're raising money with our GoFundMe. And it's been pretty helpful. We don't have millions of dollars. But I think the power of the workers and the people is, is, is definitely bigger than any amount of money that we can get. And it's been working so far. So we just need enough. We need a little bit of money, but uh, we just just need enough to pull off our, our barbecues, um, our rallies and our events. You know, we don't need millions of dollars. We don't need large portions of money. We just need the people's power and the power of the community behind us. Yeah, that's well said. I think the, the last thing I want to ask you about this warehouse and sort of what's going on lately is have there been any discussions about Amazon rolling out this big wellness program? It had a big press release I'm sure you probably saw everyone making fun of the the like box they're going to install in some warehouses where you can chill out and like watch uh, like dolphins or something, you know, like completely ridiculous kind of response. But is that happening? Is it being implemented in some way at JFK? So it's funny because they started doing this before when I was still employed. Uh, they had this rollout where, uh, you know, you're at your station working and a message come up and it's like, take 30 seconds to meditate. My thirty seconds is interrupting me from my 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 flow. Like when you're working there, you don't want to you don't want to be interrupted. You want to be in your flow. You're not even trying to think about the time. You, you, some people cover their time on their machines because they don't want to see the time. They just want to get their their shift over. So uh, for to be interrupted and meditate for thirty seconds and you're working ten hours, eleven hours, it's just a waste of time. Uh, my opinion. A lot of the workers don't like it at all. They never did. Um, but that's what we get when you have somebody sitting, you know, on their tail that's making decisions for warehouse workers that never been in that environment and don't know what we're going through. And that happens all the time with this company. They just roll out these different things, uh, speaking for the workers, thinking that's going to benefit us. But it doesn't. Um, what helps the workers is longer breaks, um, shorter work, work, work days, uh, you know, having time to their family. That that helps the workers. Uh, higher pay. But these things that they're rolling out doesn't do anything. It's yeah, everybody's making fun of it, you know, and, and don't really like it from what I heard.
Yeah, okay. That doesn't surprise me, and I've definitely asked every warehouse worker I'm talking to about how it is in their warehouse, but okay, so more evidence that this is not really doing anything. Um, The last thing I want to ask, Chris, before I let you go is a personal question, which is, you know, you, before you were fired, um, were not a particularly involved activist in any way, and now this is, you're spending your whole day, every day, for the most part, um, organizing your coworkers or your former coworkers. So can you just tell me, you know, what do you think about what you've been through and what you're doing now? Like, how have you made sense of this kind of transformation you've undergone? It's funny because I say this all the time is um, Amazon kind of prepared me for this, even though I wasn't a manager. I, I was doing the job of a manager for the last four and a half years. And the leadership principles that I had at Amazon it kind of just made it easier for me to transition over to the activism that I'm doing. And I'm actually using a lot of the principles that I learned at Amazon against them. Um, one of them is my favorite one is have a backbone and commit. And they hated the fact that I used that all, all, all the time, probably why I didn't get promoted. So yeah, I had a backbone. I, I stood up for what I thought was right. And I'm committing to seeing um, some, some change. And another principle is, you know, see, own it, fix it, which is probably one of the original principles. Um, I saw the issues, I owned up to it, and now I'm trying to fix it uh, once again. Um, so, you know, that on top of the smear, um, ironically, they said in the smear, you know, to make me the face of the whole unionizing efforts, you know, that was their words. So I, I guess I'm in a sense trying to make them eat them words. And, uh, you know, I don't. I don't have any anything else better to do. I'm unemployed still. Um, I can't really get a job anywhere. So um, this is it. This is my full-time job once again. But this time I'm on a, a different team. Thank you so much for taking time out to talk to me, Chris. I uh, really appreciate your time and wish you the best of luck in everything you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks so much for listening to Primer. It really means a lot that you've stuck with us for these first few episodes, and I hope you've enjoyed this one especially. I'm really proud of it. Thanks so much to my producer, as ever, Sarah Hurd and Angel. Thanks to Jackman Magazine, and thanks, of course, to Chris, to Freddie, to the anonymous Amazon warehouse worker. Freddie helped produce this episode as well, so an extra thanks for him. And again, keep an eye out for his article with this worker in a future issue of Jackman Magazine. See you next week.